Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com because you won't find us on Google or Facebook. We respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And uh, today we are joined by a real pioneer in helping us understand all the nefarious going ons of our government with respect to vaccine. She, this is Dr. Meryl Nass. She's somewhat stealth, even though she's been in this for two decades. She doesn't do a lot of podcasts, but she's a really behind the scenes person gathering information and helping us understand the details of what's going on. So today we're going to dive into the egregious and nefarious undertakings of these approvals of boosters and re- extension of the recommendations of the uh, COVID jabs down to the five 11 year olds, which is just, it is beyond mind boggling that they're targeting 28 million children in the US and tens of thousands of these kids are gonna die because of this recommendation. So we're gonna go deep and you're gonna help understand and she's gonna walk you through the process. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me again. Yeah, so uh, you're traveling, I guess you're we're just in uh, Alaska for a whole day. And uh, we're just glad to grab you in a hotel room so you can update us on this. But uh, I guess we can, it, it, not everyone may know or remember that uh, there's a, quite a significant subterfuge that occurred recently uh, in the efforts of the government and the drug companies to um, pull the wool over our eyes with respect to a the final approval because the FDA recently approved the COVID jab, uh, but it was only a, a product that's not available called Comirnaty, and you were the first person to expose this. So after uh, you know, why don't you go into the details to help and walk us through exactly what happened because it's just a crime what they're getting away with. Yes. Okay. So all of the. COVID vaccines and most of the COVID treatment products have not been approved. Approved means licensed. They uh, all except one, which is the Pfizer vaccine for adults age 16 and up, got approved, i.e. licensed, on August 23rd. But every other vaccine and for every other age group and the boosters have only been authorized under emergency use authorizations. And that there's a critical difference. Once a drug is fully licensed, it is subject to liability. Um, if, if the company injures you with that product, you can sue them. Unless it then later gets put uh, on the childhood schedule or is recommended by CDC in pregnancy, in which case, obtains a different liability shield called it becomes part of the national vaccine um, injury compensation program and 75 cents 
from every dose of the vaccine that's sold in the United States goes into a fund to pay for injuries that way. But if you get- That, that was the 1986 act. Yes, it, yeah. it established this. And at that point took away liability, not from every single vaccine, but for all those recommended by CDC for children. And now since 2016 for pregnant women as well, who are now the new gold rush for vaccines. Because once a company achieves a, a lack of liability, um, the profitability of the product increases dramatically. But products under emergency use, and this is based on a 2005 piece of legislation, have their own special um, government program for liability called the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. And it is uh, a terrible program. In 15 is this, years- Is this the PrEP Act? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's a subset of the PrEP Act. Okay. The PrEP Act enabled the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program to be created by Congress. Congress has to um, allocate money for it. And there is no, and so if you are injured by an emergency use product, you don't get any legal process. The companies have had all their liability waived. There is a single process that is administrative, administered through HHS, where some employees there decide whether you deserve to be compensated or not. And the maximum money you can obtain is about $370,000 if you're totally disabled or die. And the money is only to compensate you for lost wages or possibly uh, medical bills that have been paid. And in the 15, 16 years that this program has existed, they've only paid out 29 claims so to, a, to a year, to a year. And so far, even though they've had hundreds and hundreds of claims for injuries from COVID vaccines, they haven't paid out a single one. And that is um, very important because the statute of limitations is just one year. So it's all, it's getting close to running out for people who were vaccinated early. And if you don't apply, you, you know, lose your opportunity to get anything from this program, of course. In fact, it, it's really an opportunity to apply and get nothing because almost nobody gets paid. And then you have nowhere to go. There's no further appeals process. You can ask this DHS twice to compensate you. And if they say no, that's it. You can attempt to uh, sue the company that, that made the product, if you're convinced it was, it was improperly made, but the secretary of HHS has to give you the permission to sue. You have to prove that there was willful misconduct and no one has ever achieved that bar. So there has never been a lawsuit under this. So anyway, that's what you're looking at. If you get the vaccine under EUA, you've got nothing. You're going nowhere. If you're injured, you're on your own. So what happened is, President Biden and his administration decided it was gonna be very important to institute mandates for these vaccines. Now, we don't know why that is. It doesn't make sense. Large numbers of Americans are recovered and have very durable, long-lasting immunity, much stronger than what you would achieve uh, from the vaccine, which is limited only to immunity against spike, wears off over the next few months, um, may in fact, 
uh, permanently limit the kind of immune response you would make were you to be infected with COVID again. So there's absolutely no reason, no good reason to vaccinate someone who's recovered and several bad reasons so that you can harm them. There's a higher rate of injury in the recovered if you vaccinate them and you may damage, potentially damage their immune response later. But for reasons best known to itself, the Biden administration feels so certain that it needs to vaccinate everybody that it has used illegal means to tell employers that they will lose federal contracts if they don't force their employees to be vaccinated um, immediately and must fire them if they're healthcare workers, for example, or government employees or military, if they have not been vaccinated. Now, obviously that is creating a great deal of chaos, particularly within the healthcare industry, particularly in my state, where these draconian rules went into effect um, on Friday. And many fire department, police, EMTs, nurses and doctors um, can no longer work in Maine. So um, one thing that was necessary in order to push mandates forward was for the government to say it had a licensed product because the statute that enabled emergency use authorizations to, to be issued because before, so before the emergency use, you had licensed drugs and you had experimental drugs and nothing else. There were no gray areas. It was licensed. And when they brought this in, they said, look, you can't, this is an, these are still experimental drugs under emergency use. You can't force people. You have to offer them options, tell them what their options are, and they have the right to refuse. So since that is part of the statute, um, the, the federal government can't get around it. Mm -hmm. um, so they wanted a licensed product to avoid those provisions of the statute and enable them to impose mandates. So they must have put pressure on the FDA and FDA gave them what they wanted, which was a license for the Pfizer vaccine only called Comirnaty on August 23rd. But in the documents that FDA released on that date, there were some interesting caveats, which said the Comirnaty licensed vaccine is essentially equivalent to the EUA vaccine and they may be used interchangeably, but they have certain legal distinctions, okay? They didn't specify what the legal distinctions were. I concluded that the legal distinctions were the fact that under EUA, there was essentially no manufacturer liability. But once the vaccine got licensed, the manufacturer would be subject to liability claims um, unless and until the vaccine was placed on the childhood schedule or recommended in pregnancy, in which case it would then fall once certain administrative procedures had occurred, which usually take a few months, it would then fall under the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. So right now, Comirnaty um, is still not in that injury compensation program and it's licensed. So it no longer falls under the countermeasures injury, injury compensation program. And so it is in fact subject to, to, to liability if you get injured with a bottle that says Comirnaty. So of course, if you're Pfizer 
what do you want to do? You don't want to make that licensed product available until months have gone by and you can get it into the, the National Vaccine Injury Group. They have not made the licensed product available. What has happened instead in the military is that FDA has made a, basically a secret deal with the military and said certain of the emergency use lots can be considered equivalent to the licensed vaccine. We'll tell you which QR codes on those lots you can use and you can give them to soldiers as if they're licensed. And subsequently we're told that they are actually putting Cominati labels onto bottles that are emergency use authorized. Now, that probably can happen in the military, but only in the military, because there are likely to be memoranda of understanding within the military that we haven't seen yet that say soldiers cannot sue Pfizer for injuries. Um, you know that soldiers cannot sue the government for injuries. And uh, when the anthrax vaccine was in a similar situation and it was under emergency use authorization, um, you also could not sue the manufacturer. Even though it wasn't licensed, the, the government had set up some agreements that precluded soldiers suing uh, emergent biosolutions for injuries they got from anthrax vaccine. So in the military, the government and Pfizer feel like they have set up a, a situation where nobody can sue. But in the civilian world, that has not happened. And so there is no Comirnaty available. And yet, on the basis that FDA licensed this product, the federal government is still telling, telling employers that they can mandate it and that they must fire uh, employees that have not taken the vaccine, otherwise they will lose government contracts. And so we're in a very um, interesting situation that uh, is ripe for litigation and Children's Health Defense, which is uh, an organization I represent, um, is litigating some of this, but the litigation situation in the United States has been very difficult since the pandemic began. We found that cases that normally would have would have been easy wins are being thrown out by the courts both in the US and in Europe um, something strange has happened and the the judges are looking for any way out so they don't have to rule on the merits of these cases so so we'll see what happens but um, we did we have brought a, a lawsuit uh, saying you can't have a vaccine that is both an emergency use product and a licensed product that that's against the law but they've done it anyway and our um request for an injunction was thrown out and we're still pursuing that case well thank you for summarizing that so well uh it helps us understand uh the backstory of what's going on and what they're seeking to do to justify their uh, recommendations and, and get away with it because ultimately, you know, Pfizer is not stupid. They're, I believe, the largest drug company in the world, um, and uh, they do not want to have any uh, legal responsibilities for the damages that they're causing, the damages, the and the injuries, and the deaths.
So um, it's interesting, you know, it's just hard to justify how they're getting away with this because they're, they're charging $20 a dose. I mean, the taxpayers are being charged that the individuals receiving this COVID jab aren't caught charged anything. It's all picked up by the taxpayers and the profits are paid to the drug manufacturers, but the justification for the charges are that they had to spend a lot, not only in manufacture, but to research it. But I believe it's somewhere between 10 and $20 billion were paid by the taxpayers to do the research to get this, these drugs into uh, these, these jabs into being used. So uh, it's even more egregious with Merck, who doesn't have a, a vaccine at this point, but they've got a drug. It's a difficult name to pronounce. <clears throat> I don't recall it, but they, they were- Lupiravir. Yeah, mal, say that again. It's mal, no. mal, malnupiravir. Malnupiravir, yeah, malnupiravir. And uh, I think they're charging $700. It cost them $17. And they didn't pay a penny, didn't pay a penny for the research. All, I think it was $10 billion, another $10 billion funded by the taxpayers to, to put this drug to market. So uh, although that drug does, it's not a vaccine, so it's not, doesn't really qualify for exclusion of liability. Uh, but it's just, these, these drug companies are criminals. They're absolute criminals. And it's just shocking what they're getting away with and the, and the maneuvers they're implementing to, to get these workarounds. Um, but as bad as this is, it's, it, it really pales in comparison to what they're doing that they've just recently done. Uh, and I'd like you to walk us through that because it's just, it's just appalling what they what they've done is to um, change change the recommendations to include five to eleven year olds, uh, a group that essentially is about twenty eight million children in the United States, none of which, well, virtually there's over if you round it off, the the risk for any reactions to COVID is statistically zero. It is zero. And in fact, I don't believe there's any recorded case in the entire world of anyone in that age group dying of COVID that didn't have some really strong existing comorbidity. They're not at risk. If you have a healthy child, there is zero risk. And there's only danger if you get this vaccine. And it's just it's just shocking that they got away with this. And, and they knew they were going to get away with it because I believe Pfizer, or the, the, they had all the doses. It's a different dose schedule. It's a third the dose. So it's not the adult vaccine. It's a third of the dose, which, which violates the recommendation of, of, of typically if, if you're giving a drug, it's a milligram per kilogram. It's based on their weight, but you know, the, they're giving the same dose to an 11 year old that they would give to a, uh, a five-year-old and there could be a three, four-fold difference in weight. So it, it's, they're, they're just guessing on this, but, but then nevertheless, the, all these vaccines were pre-made and in, in anticipation of the approval and uh, by the FDA, <laughs> the advisory committee, um, which, which basically approved it unanimously. So you've got a lot more details on the backstory. And, and I, I, I'm just so emotionally distressed about this. I couldn't even talk about it rationally anyway. So why don't, why don't you expand on your insights and so what? Well, doing. I'm at least as upset as you. So as I said, we don't know why the government wants everybody vaccinated, but it's probably, there's probably a reason that goes beyond protecting us from COVID. 
and we don't and we don't know what that is. Um, in the pro, the government got FDA to authorize the vaccine for twelve to fifteen year olds on May ten, and subsequently that group, which is about sixteen million kids, has been getting vaccinated across the country. Um, and that's under emergency use. So again, you can't sue, but something kind of, I would say evil happened, which was many cities began vaccinating 12 to 15 year olds in the absence of parental permission. So a child could show up with their friends um, or a friend's mother at a vaccine center and get vaccinated. Um, with no one asking about their medical history, nobody calling the parents, vaccinators were told to make their own assessment. If they thought this child could give consent, go ahead and vaccinate. Now, that is a gross violation of our laws. And yet it was happening in Boston, in, in Philadelphia, in Seattle, um, uh, in San Francisco. And we have good documentation of it. The government currently is planning for mobile vaccination clinics for kids um, and vaccinations in schools. And they may take this program of vaccinating without parental consent down to the five to 11 year olds. <laughs> five now, year olds, a five year old is supposed to give consent. That's just. Well, it's basically throw, it's throwing out the whole, con the basic concept of medical ethics is informed consent. Nobody gets to perform a medical procedure on you or vaccinate you without your consent or the consent of somebody old enough to provide it. So the government, again, without bringing in any new laws, is just bypassing the legal system. Just as it bypassed the medical system, the way it delivered the vaccinations to adults, you know, outside of doctor's offices, in clinics, often having untrained, you know, military people giving the vaccine and issuing tests. Now the government has decided the only way to get a lot of kids vaccinated is to do it in pediatricians offices uh, where your trusted pediatrician can talk you into it. So what they did at the Verpec meeting last <clears throat> Tuesday, was can, for those of us who don't know, can you, uh, what is Yeah, sorry, the VERPAC meeting is the, the vaccine, FDA has one vaccine advisory committee and it convenes this committee whenever it wants them to, to review an authorization or a license. It, interestingly enough, did not convene the committee when it decided to give Pfizer a license on August 23rd. And it got a lot of criticism for that. Um, basically the FDA has to have this committee because of federal rules, but it does its best to control it. You know, it selects the people who are on it. And right now, half of the regular members are gone and FDA has filled it in with a, another group of about 10 or 12 new members handpicked to give the FDA what it wants. And many of these members have profound conflicts of interest so that the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal is a temporary member of this committee. He said at the last meeting, well, 
we're not going to know what the side effects are and, uh, or the efficacy until we start giving it to lots of children. So let's just go and start giving it, and then we'll find out. Um, there are two members of the committee, one permanent, one temporary, who are career employees of the CDC, whose job it is to push vaccines at the CDC. If they voted against author authorizing a vaccine or, or licensing it, they would be out of a job. So they have no business on that committee. And then there are other members who consult for pharma, including consulting for Pfizer or doing clinical trials for Pfizer. So it's, it's a very um, unethical stew of advisory committee members, but it has to be there by law. Uh, so let me see. What happened last week is Pfizer delivered a large package of information to the FDA on October 6th. FDA staff had to go through this large packet uh, of information on the five to 11 year olds, produce their own report, which was about 40 pages long, and create talks to give to the advisory committee. And they did all of this in 17 days. So from August 6th, you know, getting the package from Pfizer, they presented it on October 23rd. And there was apparently very little um, critical thought that went into their presentations. Um, however, during the meeting, well, uh, Children's Health Defense, and I was one of the authors, wrote to the committee and wrote to FDA officials and said, look, there's all these reasons that don't make logical or medical sense for vaccinating kids in this age group because they almost never get very ill or die. Um, and the side effects of the vaccine are essentially unknown, but the one side effect we, well, we know, we know there are a lot of side effects that the issue is the federal government has concealed from us the rate at which these side effects occur. But we know that the rate for myocarditis is very high, probably at least one in 5,000 young males, teenage men or men in their early 20s who are vaccinated develop inflammation of the heart, which is a very serious side effect, can lead, um, probably always leads to some scarring, can lead to sudden death, can lead to heart failure. And after the smallpox vaccine was used um, in 2003, there are many cases that, that also caused myocarditis. There were many cases of heart failure and deaths. And, and that's what ended the program after only 40,000 doses were given to civilians. So anyway, the, the members of the committee were able to elicit the fact that basically the test that was done for the blood test done for efficacy had not been validated that in the clinical trial, there were two groups of kids. The first group was enrolled in the trial for two to three months. And the second group, because FDA said that we don't have enough kids, was enrolled in the trial for 17 days, <laughs> 17 days. And um, these two groups comprised uh, over 3000 kids who got vaccinated and about 1500 or 2000 that got placebo vaccinations. And none of them got very sick. None had to go into the hospital with COVID. None died. None had myocarditis. And it was claimed that not a single kid had a serious adverse reaction that could be linked to the vaccine. They didn't say how they made that determination. 
basically they just waved their hands and said, you know, the vaccine was safe. But they didn't even look at safety in all these kids. So even though FDA had said, add kids to your clinical trial, they had a safety subset. There was only a few hundred kids. And they had an efficacy subset that was a small number of kids, I think even less than 100, from whom they drew blood and tried to show that they had adequate levels of neutralizing antibodies in their blood, which was a surrogate for efficacy because they didn't have enough cases of COVID in this very abbreviated trial to use the cases as a justification that the vaccine actually works in this age group. So even after the advisory committee had elicited that there really wasn't reliable evidence of safety or effectiveness, because this blood test they did had never been validated, they still decided, well, look, there are a few kids here and there who have many comorbidities or sick kids, and these kids would benefit from vaccination. And the way the FDA has asked us to deliberate, they give us only one choice. You can either vote to authorize the vaccine for five to 11 year olds, for the entire age group, or you can vote against authorizing it. We don't have an option to just authorize it for the kids who, who are chronically ill, who are the ones who might benefit. And therefore, we just have to vote yes, because some of those kids, some of those kids could die if we don't make them, you know, if we don't make the vaccine available to them. Now, it was mentioned in the meeting that the advisors knew mandates were coming. They also knew that back in May, June, CDC had established that 42% of kids had pre-existing immunity, had already had COVID because many more children than adults have asymptomatic cases or they have just a cold and you don't even, so you don't know that they have COVID, but when you do serologies on them later, you find positive serologies, they have antibodies. So if in May, June, 42% of kids in the five to 11 age group were already immune, we can safely assume that after a summer of them playing together and two months of them attending school together with you know, very few, if any, serious school outbreaks occurring, that at least 50% of this five to 11 year cohort is now already immune. And that vaccinating those, that 50 or 60% will give them no additional benefit in terms of immunity, but will put them at higher risk of side effects than if they had never had COVID and may damage their future immune response if they um, are uh, exposed to new COVID variants and don't completely, uh, you know, if they get a minor illness from new variants, they may have, as that happens over time, this concept of original antigenic sin, they may have a, a limitation to the broad immunity they would otherwise develop. So because the, the vaccines only give you spike and leave out 20 more proteins that are associated with the coronavirus. So anyway, the, the people in the committee said, well, you know, there's all these reasons, you know, maybe we shouldn't 
give it, but we've got to save those few uh, kids. Who's, and what about these kids whose parents are dying for vaccine? Well, nobody said, look, the parents may be dying for healthy kids, may be dying for vaccine, but that's because we haven't told them the truth about the vaccine. We haven't told them their kids don't need it. We haven't told them it's gonna damage, potentially damage future immunity. We haven't told them they're at higher risk of side effects than if they never had COVID. We're not allowing them to go get antibody tests to establish that they're already immune and, that, and therefore should be medically waived from being vaccinated. So the committee members were aware of all this stuff, but in the end, and most of them, you know, consult for pharma, or like the editor of the New England Journal, they sell reprints, they sell advertising to Pfizer and to all the other drug companies. They make most of their money from drug companies and they know which side their bread is buttered on. So apart from one very smart member of the committee who works for the NIH, the re he abstained, he wouldn't even vote no. He didn't have the guts to vote no, but he knew this was a bad idea. Every other member of the committee voted yes, which is what FDA wanted. Now that allows, so FDA gets to decide on whether to license or authorize a vaccine or drug. CDC then determines which demographic groups the vaccine should be rolled out to. That is gonna happen on Tuesday in two days, no, tomorrow. And um, we can assume that the, the advisory committee for CDC is probably equally as spineless as the advisory committee for FDA and will almost certainly roll this out to be available to all children whose parents want them vaccinated. And in fact, we may see clinics popping up that don't require informed consent in the five to 11 year old group. Let me just mention that the, the chief medical officer of in Canada's um, British Columbia said they have been working on, on law and they have brought these laws into being in British Columbia that allow children of any age to consent for themselves. So think about that, a baby can consent for vaccinations for themselves. <laughs> what happens if the, the baby the cries? The epitome of absurdity, the epitome of absurdity. <laughs> yeah. And that well, they, may be happening here. So uh, some basic questions uh, from your review of the literature, what is your best guess as to the risk of myocarditis and other side effects in this younger age group from the five to 11 compared to the 12 to 15 year olds who already have a documented increase? My guess is they have a high, more, a more active immune system and they'd be at a higher likelihood of developing these side effects, but I don't know. Do you have any suspicions? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> in the letter we, we CHD wrote to the advisory committee for FDA, we created a, a graph based on the reporting rate to VAERS of myocarditis versus age. And we showed there was an exponential curve so that men age 65 and up had a rate that was one one hundredth the rate of boys in 12 to 17. And we don't, and if that exponential curve keeps going up, 
the rate in the five to 11 year olds could be even dramatically higher. Mm -hmm. So in those, in those young men, uh, one in 5,000 rate was reported to VAERS. That's not a real rate. That doesn't tell us how many people, that just tells us how many people went to the trouble, di got diagnosed with myocarditis and then went to the trouble of reporting it to, to the FDA. Um, the FDA and CDC have a large number of other databases from which they can gather rates of illness. The VAERS is considered passive reporting. It is not considered fit for purpose to establish illness rates because we don't know how many people report. Does one in 10 report to VAERS, one in 100, one in 50? Um, just nobody knows. However, again, the, every, because everything is crazy since the pandemic came in, the CDC has tried to pull the wool over our eyes and has claimed that the rate of anaphylaxis in the population from COVID vaccines is identical to the reporting rate to VAERS. We know yeah. that's not true, you know, but, but they have it on their website, that's what they have. And, and elsewhere on the website, they say you can't do it. You know, you can't take a VAERS rate and call it an actual rate of reactions, but they've done that. And they're trying to um, obfuscate the fact that they're not giving you real rates and sort of pretending that the myocarditis rate is probably the VAERS rate, although they're not saying so directly. Now, let me give you an example about smallpox vaccine, which also caused myocarditis. So uh, the original military study just looked at cases that were sent uh, to uh, experts that were sent to specialists, and they found about one in 15,000, uh, roughly, people who got vaccinated for smallpox came down with a clinical case of myocarditis, myocarditis and were referred to a specialist. However, um, a good military immunologist started looking at soldiers very carefully before they got smallpox vaccine and published a paper in 2015. And they drew blood before and after the vaccination and found that one in 220 was developing a clinical case of myocarditis, mm. one in 220. But one in 30 was developing a subclinical case of myocarditis where their troponin rose from normal to more than two times the upper limits of normal. Mm -hmm. But these people didn't show symptoms. So one in 30 had inflammation of their heart that was measurable on testing. And so right now, in terms of what the rate is for COVID, if nobody is, is looking, no, no federal agency wants to find out the real rate. But if you did a simple study, just looked for troponin levels before and after a dose, you would find out what the real rate of myocarditis is. Now that's a serious side effect. It can lead to sudden death. It can lead to death over several years due to heart failure, but there are many more side effects. And FDA has simply waved their hands and said, look, our clinical trials aren't big enough to, to find a rate. You know, we found a few cases of, of Bell's palsy. You know, there's a case here and there of, of stroke, heart attack, we just don't know what the rates are, duh. So, you know, we don't have to talk about them because we don't really know. And 
this is what we're dealing with. So all these databases, which is about a dozen different databases that CDC and FDA said they could access to determine the rates of side effects after vaccination with COVID vaccines, they, they're either not being used or they're being used improperly. Um, it was discovered that an, a new algorithm was being used to um, study the VAERS database that only came into use in January immediately after the vaccines were, were authorized. And the algorithm was developed such that you compared two vaccines to the other, to each other. And if the pattern of side effects was similar between the two vaccines, which is often the case, because vaccine reactions are, are you know, there's a limited number of general vaccine reactions. So Bell's palsy happens in anthrax vaccine. It also happens in COVID vaccine. Um, you know, Guillain-Barre happens in a bunch of vaccines. So if the pattern is similar, even if one vaccine has a thousand times the rate of these side effects as the other one, by using this flawed particular algorithm, you obscure that difference and you claim there's no problem because the pattern was the same, even though the rates could be markedly different. And that is the algorithm they're using to analyze VAERS. Yeah. They're also using some bad method, we don't know what it is, to analyze the vaccine safety database, which um, encompasses 12 million Americans who are enrollees of certain HMOs around the country. And CDC pays for access to their electronic medical records and their data. And somehow when, the, when these databases have been looked at carefully, they're finding very low rates of myocarditis <laughs> in boys, approximately equal to the VAERS reporting. You know, and, they, and it was said months ago, we can't find a signal for, for myocarditis. We're not finding an anaphylaxis signal. You know, we're not finding a Bell's palsy signal. We're not, they couldn't, they couldn't find that the rates were elevated for all of these known side effects. So there's something wrong with the analytic methods that are being used, but they haven't told us precisely what they are. What we do know is that the rates of side effects that are being reported to VAERS are phenomenal. They're orders of magnitude. An order of magnitude is 10 times. So they're 10 to 100 times higher than what has been reported for any other vaccine. Deaths, de reported deaths after COVID in the United States are 17,000 off the charts. Other side effects totaled together over 800,000. Again, more deaths and more side effects than have ever been reported for every vaccine in use in the US cumulatively over 30 years. Combined, so combined, uh, all of the vac previous vaccines combined together do not even come close to the devastation and destruction that this COVID jab has implemented in our culture. And the federal agencies are just looking the other way pretending nothing happened. And no matter how many people approach them in, all, in so many different ways, with lawsuits, with public comments, with you know, reaching out to politicians, these people have you know, put their heels together. They won't let us look into the databases they have. 
and they pretend nothing at all is happening. Yeah, it's it's obviously intentional. I mean, they spent billions of dollars to to uh, develop these these COVID jabs, and they spent additional billions of dollars just in marketing and promoting them. Yet they spent zero, not one penny, on any intervention to definitively identify and accurately measure what the side effects are. And that is their rightful, legal, lawful responsibility. So they're supposed to protect the public. They're supposed to identify these. They're not supposed to be a marketing firm for the drug companies, which is exactly what they've converted to. Right. So, So a vaccine is not just a syringe with something in it. A vaccine... Is a, is a syringe and the liquid and a label. And the label is supposed to tell you what clinical trials were conducted, what the results were, what the side effects are, what the interactions are with other drugs or vaccines, you know, what the rates of problems are. None of these vaccines has a truthful label. Um, so, Although I have been saying since the beginning of this program that people should have choice. You should be able, if you want a vaccine, you should be able to have it. And if you don't want a vaccine, you don't, you don't need to have it because you can't achieve herd immunity anyway with these vaccines. They're too leaky. Um, it's now been acknowledged by Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, and by the top vaccinologist in, in England, Sir Patrick Valance. There's no, there's never going to be herd immunity from these vaccines. So if you can't achieve that, how can you ask for somebody to get vaccinated? But you know, I've changed my tune on the vaccines over the last week, mm. and now I don't think anyone really should be allowed to be vaccinated with them until you can come up with an honest label and honest marketing. And if you can't tell people how much good these vaccines are gonna do for them and how much harm they could potentially do. And you can't provide them the honest information with all the databases you have at your disposal. I don't think you have the right, I mean, the the statute, the EUA statute requires that you provide this information. You have to give people who are taking an experimental product a risk benefit um, analysis based on what you know. And right now the federal agencies know a lot and they're hiding it. And so I think a, a, that's not legal. Mm-hmm. And I personally don't think anyone needs to, needs to take these vaccines. Whether the courts are gonna agree with me is another question because we feel most of the courts have been corrupted, but based on existing law. Another thing that happened during this verb pack meeting is Pfizer said, look, we, you know, we want to give the vaccines in doctor's offices and we've found a way to stabilize the vaccine. So we don't need those cold fridges anymore. We can put these vials in a doctor's office and they can sit in the fr- regular fridge for 10 weeks and they'll be fine. So people said, okay, what'd you do? How'd you, how'd you make this marvelous discovery? <laughs> and they said, you know, we went from the phosphate buffered saline buffer to a tris buffer and we slightly changed some electrolytes. And so they said, well, okay, how did, how did that make it so much more stable? And everybody looked, looked at each other and said, we don't know. So they, so an hour later, Pfizer pulled some chemist from somewhere who got on the line, but he couldn't explain it either. Then later in the meeting, 
one of the, um, I, these people are bright. One of the members of the committee said, hey, did you use this new formulation in the clinical trial? And Bill Gruber, the Pfizer rep said, no, we didn't. So this is another grossly illegal thing. They've got a new formulation of vaccine. It wasn't tested in humans and they're about to use it on 28 million American kids. It's an absolute dystopian nightmare, completely surreal. You can't, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's just shocking. So as bad as this is, earlier this year, Fauci projected that these COVID jabs would be available for everyone from infants all the way up. So they've already got the five-year-olds. What's, what's your anticipation of the infants to five-year-olds? Okay. The way the system works in the United States, since the 1990s, a law was put in place that basically was designed to help children. It said, look, we have all these drugs, but they're tested in grown-ups. We can't really test in children because of existing laws and because of informed consent. Kids can't, in those days, they didn't think kids could produce, provide their own informed consent. And <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so FDA said, look, we need to test drugs in kids. We need to know how they work in kids because kids are not just little adults. And therefore, a law was passed that said, as long as a company in consultation with FDA does appropriate testing in children, a drug or a vaccine can get an additional six months of patent pr protection. That means that no generics can come in for six more months. And if they have a blockbuster vaccine like the COVID vaccines, that can equate to billions of dollars in extra profit. So with the Pfizer vaccine, FDA has specified how to do the children trials and when they need to be done, et cetera. And so we know that Pfizer has submitted its plan for vaccinating babies down to six months already earlier this year. And presumably FDA has approved that. And we believe those trials are now ongoing because whistleblowers in Poland have found out that there are four European countries, I think Poland, Finland, Spain, and one other, and the US, these trials in, of, the, of the Pfizer vaccine down to six month old babies. But we also know that part of the deal between Pfizer and FDA was that they were gonna test it in babies even younger than six months. And Pfizer has to provide its plan for that by the end of next January. And then those trials will start. Now, this arrangement between FDA and Pfizer will give Pfizer its extra six months of patent protection. Whether or not these vaccines are intended to be used in those age groups. So you can also look at these trials as a way of almost sacrificing little children because you know when you start a trial, you don't know what the dangers are going to be when you give these drugs or vaccines to little children. Um, I doubt, I mean, I could be wrong, but I doubt we're gonna give these to newborn babies the way we give the hepatitis B vaccine on the date of birth but they will be tested in very young babies. And so that question is whose babies get tested? 
Um, in the past, sometimes the babies that got tested were foster children, wards of the state. Sometimes parents offer up their children. I mean, we know doctors have offered up their children for the five to 11 year old testing and in the younger testing. But um, there will be clinical trials. Okay, so there's gonna be trial, there are ongoing trials in children and there will be trials in ever younger children. When will we get the data from those trials? Turns out that in the agreements reached between Pfizer and the FDA, some of those trials won't conclude until 2024, 2025, and 2027. So the goal here <clears throat> is to vaccinate all Americans, children and adults, you know, within the coming few months or year, five years before we actually know from clinical trials what, this, what the rates of myocarditis are and what other side effects may be occurring. You know, that's another crime. It's again, it's, it's the fulfilling the letter of the law without the meaning of the law. So um, it makes no sense to run clinical trials that are not gonna be completed until five years after your mass vaccination program has gone through and vaccinated everyone. It's just a joke to do that. But FDA um, has become clown world and they, uh, what they do now is to perform a charade of all the normal regulatory processes that they are expected to do, but they're only doing them in an abbreviated or peculiar manner so that they don't really give them data correctly. But they, for all the Americans out there who haven't spent 20 years examining the FDA procedures like I have, you know, it's designed to make them think a real regulatory process is going on. And I just wanna tell you, you're the guinea pigs and they're not collecting the data. No. Nobody should get these shots. Yeah, fortunately there are tens of millions of Americans who understand that and have refused at many, many cases, a great cost to themselves personally, losing their jobs or other harsh circumstances. So those are really the, the, uh, the placebo, the only true placebo, because everyone else is being the shot. But uh, the extension of the question, because I don't think I understand, it, it, it appears that Fauci was correct and that it, it may even be this year. Do you think that they're going to uh, have some federal regulatory agency approve the COVID jab for the, for the six months olds to five-year-olds this year? Or is it, when do you think it will No, be? no, the, that data won't be supplied until late next year, if at all. Okay. But, um, but the trials down to age two are certainly ongoing. No. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's just from bad to worse, but uh, well, that's, I guess, some saving grace that at least the, the children under five will be protected for a short term. Um, well, that was, uh, appreciate the insights and that you shared and the details to help us uh, understand, you know, what's going on at a deep level, because this is, not easy information to come by, and you've been diligently uh, seeking to uh, identify these these uh, pieces of uh, information for the last twenty years with your when your brilliant work on the anthrax 
vaccine stimulated from the 9-11 fiasco. So um, any other insights you'd like to share with us? Well, the, the point, so it's illegal actually to authorize EUAs for these vaccines because there are drugs that mm -hmm. can prevent the condition as well as treat it. And the ones everybody has heard are ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, but there are a number of other drugs that have profound effects on COVID. Um, I learned some more about this this weekend from uh, Richard Urso and Ryan Cole. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to start using Tricor um, and uh, Cyproheptadine. And what, uh, what is Tricor? I know Cyproheptadine. Tricor is, is a phenofibrate which apparently essentially emulsifies the um, lipid uh, that cover, breaks down not only lipid nanoparticles, but, but fatty um, conglomerations of stuff that contain virus and, um, and inflammatory substances, so allowing the, the body to break them down better. So this should help the not only the COVID um, Early uh, virus, but, but actually problems from the complication from the nanoliposomes that are in the vaccine. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, I can't remember all the complex reasons why cyproheptadine is a um, preferred antihistamine, but it is using combinations of H1 and H2 blockers. So Pepsid, is, it, Pepsid at high dose, up to 80 milligrams three times a day is useful for treatment. Um, Robert Malone has a clinical trial just starting now where he's using the combination of Pepsid and Celebrex, Celecoxib. And another drug, a drug, um, what is it? The, the most uh, used oral drug for diabetes. Metformin? Metformin apparently has a role as well, 500 milligrams a day. So I have to learn more about all that, but- Well, you know, it, that it, would make sense, but, but it's far better to treat the foundational cause. And metformin does it superficially and it's a band-aid. And if you can modulate your diet to decrease insulin resistance, you achieve the same result. Yeah. Now, and I'm not, I'm not a big drug fan, although I'm sure many of these could be better than taking the COVID jab. Uh, or suffering from the results of the infection. But I'm wondering, it seems to be a universal recommendation to address the microclotting, to put people on aspirin. I think there's Absolutely. many, yeah. So I, no I'm, wonder, I'm wondering what you are, and it's usually the typical dose is 325 milligrams or you know, one adult, adult aspirin. Uh, some, some studies rec or recommendations maybe recommend two, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are in using something like N-acetylcysteine, which seems in my mind to be superior and may preclude the uh, need of taking an aspirin for achieving the same results at, at, at stopping the, the, the clots. So aspirin, you know, has a partic particular effect on platelets that the spike activates. Mm -hmm. um, does NAC have that action or does it affect other parts of the clotting you know, cascade? I'm not sure if it works on platelets. It certainly impacts the clotting cascade and actually helps dissociate some of the fibrin uh, bonds that occur that actually contribute to the clot. 
and of course, know, and, it's, and it's also a precursor for glutathione, which many people are deficient on, and it's important in, in mediating inflammatory side effects from the condition. So, do, do you think 600 milligrams twice a day is enough NAC? From my review, it probably is, and maybe even excessive. Maybe only 500 milligrams is, is required. Um, I mean, it's in many times it's a mistake to take too much, but I haven't carefully reviewed the studies that address this. I'm just, you know, that's why I asked the question. I don't, I don't know. Um, Ryan Cole says uh, basically everybody is vitamin D deficient in the winters if they're not if you live at a high. Well, absolutes are rarely ever correct. And I, I, would be the, <laughs> I would be the example that breaks that because I have not swallowed any vitamin D in over a decade. And my, my last level a few weeks ago was 70. But you is, live in Florida. I, I know, but he said everybody, okay? Right, so. no, no, but what I, I started to say, and I couldn't remember, uh, up above a certain parallel is what okay, I, yeah. what was the yeah, end of the- un unless you supplement, that's correct. Yeah, I think it's like the 22, 20 degree, 20, 20 degrees. It was 34th parallel or something because we were okay. in Alaska. Oh, okay. Everyone in Alaska, everyone in Canada, for sure. Yes. And I'm in Maine. So everyone. Is, in Maine. You're not much different. You're probably over, yeah. over, over higher North in some of Canada. Yeah. So the idea is uh, we all need to take vitamin C otherwise because it um, lower, you know, lowers our, um, chance of getting the disease and, lo and lowers the risk of getting a severe case. And there are many other postulated mechanisms by which vitamin D may help us, you know, fight against cancer and other uh, chronic heart illness. Heart, heart disease, autoimmune disease, which are some of the big ones, diabetes, obesity. You know, it's just, it's like a mirror. This is like a magic pill. I mean, it would, it would, if it's just amazing all the human conditions that it benefits. I mean, aside from decreasing, improving your immune system, decreasing your, decreasing your risk for this type of infection. So, so Ryan says your level should be over 50, not yes. 30. Uh, oh, 100%. That 100%. Yeah, 30 is minimal. It's, it's suboptimal for most people. And, and it, if it drops below 50, you're running into problems. So 60 to 80 is probably the range that you're looking for. And if you have COVID, or actual COVID, if you have cancer, that would be a condition that we'd probably benefit from 80 to 100, but 60 to 80 for most, most people is a target zone. And the only way that you could possibly know this, you can't guess it, you can't feel it, you've got to get a blood test. It's the only way to do it. Right, good. Yeah, so I, th I think over 50 was, is, is a bare butt minimum. Uh, and, and the thing, you probably, needed over 50 but the problem is in the winter especially if you have decreased exposure to ultraviolet radiation your typical and you're not supplementing your levels tend to fall so uh, vitamin d is fat soluble it stays in tissues for quite a while so it doesn't drop acutely like water soluble vitamins would so it, it'll last for a month or two before you start to go so if you're at 50 or above 50, then you can gradually fall down to 50. And then by the time you get exposure to the sun in the spring, it starts to climb back up again. So boy, you have done such an amazing job and you continue to do, and you're involved right now with a, a stealth project that I'm really not at liberty to discuss, but it's very exciting. It's using a strategy that uh, was used to knock tobacco out and, and catch that that industry and its lies and denial of th that there's any addiction associated with smoking 
tobacco or any risk of cancer. I mean, that was as crazy, obvious lies that they, but they persisted, but we fought, there was finally some legal actions that caused them to capitulate and surrender. And now we have the warnings and there's a similar effort going on now uh, that you're involved with and Bobby Kennedy and Robert Malone. So, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to disclose what's going on soon, very soon. So any, now you have a website, I think it's MerrillNessMD.com. I do. Um, and I also have a more updated website, anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com. And that's a, that's a mouthful, anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com. Yes. I'm, I'm assuming it discusses more than just anthrax. Oh, yes. So um, <laughs> I tried to create Merrill Nass MD as a um, mirror site, which ha would have easier navigability. Um, but, you know, everything is difficult. So, um, well, especially if you're doing it yourself, obviously that's ideally that should be outsourced to someone who's technically literate and, and yes, exactly. with all the new, new recent developments so that, you know, you can make it easy but to do it yourself is like crazy, especially when you're, you're, you're <laughs> that's not your primary skill set. Your skill set is an investigative position to understand what the, the government and, these other uh, globalists have and plan for us. So anyway, that anthrax.blogspot.com. Anthrax is, vaccine. Oh, anthrax vaccine. <laughs> we got to get you a different domain. <laughs> Jeez, because it's got to be simple. I mean, that's just too much. Yes. Uh, but anyway, we could put links in there, so you just have to click on a link in the article, so you can get people to. It. But but you you're you you don't have frequent posts, but when they're when you post, it's really pretty good. So it's definitely someone should should be reviewing well, it on a regular basis. Actually, I post things almost every day. Oh, okay. Other people's articles, and then I write one of my own, maybe once a week. Okay, that's what I was referring to. The ones you're writing, yeah. Well, you're, you're doing a magnificent job. Uh, we're all fortunate to have you looking out for us and helping uncover the sordid efforts of these individuals, corporations, and uh, companies that uh, are seeking to profit at the expense of human suffering and death. Uh, it's a sad, sordid tale. And I mean, it just brings you to tears when you think what they're doing and getting away with. I mean, I've watched... I mean, sometimes I just watch these things before I go to bed and I just scream, how could they be doing this? How could they be doing this? How could yeah. they get away with it? So let me say again for everybody, all the vaccines that are available in the United States are not comirnaty because of the liability. All issue. the COVID jabs. All the COVID, all the COVID jabs. jabs are authorized, not licensed. They're all legally, technically experimental. And legal, I know you can lose your job and all these terrible things can happen, but you can sue later. Legally, they can't force you because of the Nuremberg Code and because of existing U.S. law about informed consent and because of the actual statute on emergency use authorization, which says you have the right to refuse. They can't force you to take these. I know they are forcing you, but legally they can't. And keep that in mind. You know, as I've told people, you demand to see the bottle that says Comirnaty because they legally they can force the licensed product on you, but there isn't any right now. So you have an out for the next few months, hopefully. 
And beyond that, there is just no reason, no possible justification for you to ever, ever, ever give your child this, this nonsense. It just should never be done. You've, your responsibility as a parent is to protect your child, not to inflict damage and harm on them based on the recommendations of an of a absolutely corrupt and fraudulent system. So you've got to defend your children. There's no child who should have ever, ever, ever be given this, this COVID jab. Yeah. I mean, there are good reasons to think it may damage fertility. And the government won't tell us about that. But we know that in the animal studies, the lipid nanoparticle was going preferably to the ovaries of the rodents. And, uh, and we know that the government has tried to cover up uh, pregnancy losses in women who are vaccinated during pregnancy. So they're really dangerous vaccines. And it's, it's not what you don't know won't hurt you. What you don't know will hurt you. Um, so please protect your children. And, and if, if there's any way, don't get vaccinated. When, the more people who say no, the more the government is already backing down. So in, in many cities, the, the um, imposed um, dates by which you have vaccinated have been pushed back. And, it's, and now the um, Biden administration is saying, well, the, it's not going to be carved in stone. You know, you're not jumping off a cliff. We're going to negotiate with people because they don't want to lose 30 or 40 percent of their staff. So be strong, protect yourself and your children. Know you're doing the right thing. We've got a, a criminal organization, you know, running things now. And in many cases, it's the same. This is a worldwide program of some kind designed to control us. And um, once we all figure it out, you know, we can win. There's many, many more of us than there are of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the practical reality is if, if still about a third of us, at least that are understand this and refuse to, to take this. And if we choose to resist, especially in the central industries, then they can't afford the loss of that critical manpower threshold because the, the country will collapse. I mean, they did it with pilots in the Southwest. I mean, you, they, they forced them to change their position because there is no way they could continue to run their business with that many people refused to, to cooperate and uh, just essentially were fired or quit, whatever, whichever one. The end result is they, have, they don't have the critical threshold needed to continue their business. So we've got to resist. We've got to maintain it. It's the only yes. way out. This weekend, 1,500 American Airlines flights got canceled because yeah. the pilots and others called out sick. So the end, and on Wednesday, there is a national walkout day. Don't go to work. Go into the streets. Demonstrate. Do not cooperate. Don't wear masks. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. As we've got to do is peaceful dis civil disobedience. So that's what, that's what we need. It'll work. Or at least yeah. it's, a, it's, a whole, it's, a, it's the best shot we've got. So I would definitely recommend it. Well, again, thank you for everything you're doing. Really appreciate the time and your work and effort in this area and continued efforts to educate us. Thank you.